0: Man, oh, man, has it been a busy week. I was out in Oregon last week working with my buddies. They're producing a documentary series called Heroes of Adult Protective Services, Heroes of Adult Protection. And we were doing a story in Oregon. We've done some stories in uh, Massachusetts. And the prospect is that we'll have more stories in New York and California. This is my buddy Stu Maddox and his partner Joe Applebaum at the Clowder Group. And they inform me Clowder is a group of cats. Okay. And then also have been wrapping up several voice locket stories, families telling their own stories. Actually, got some money in the bank. Mrs. Watson likes that. This is all a way of excusing that I do not have a new guest, but I have a fascinating story. That you would probably think is a new guest because it comes from a couple of years ago this being martin luther king day gene hall had a fascinating story about dr king encountering him as a young woman and lots of other family stories gene hall
1: you have to heal this stuff you know because I don't want some little girl in my family now to, ch- to care, because it will be carried. He's not here, but that darkness
2: will be carried. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to In Her Words,
0: the podcast. I'm Stuart Watson. Jean Hall was introduced to me by her nephew, and I knew about her nephew because I had interviewed his mother. This is all very much one degree of separation. And they're all from my hometown, Albany, Georgia. And this being the week of MLK Day, I remembered that she had told an incredible story about Martin Luther King, but it's embedded in a whole bunch of family stories and stories about our hometown. And she is the consummate storyteller. And I super enjoyed talking to her in her home, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Jean Hall, where were you born?
1: I was born in Albany, Georgia. Uh, At that time, it was a small town in the southwest corner of Georgia.
0: Hospital or home?
1: Hospital. And the interesting part about my birth was I was born on my mother's 42nd birthday. Uh And at that time, women did not have babies in their 40s. You had your children in your late teens and your 20s, and then you're done. That it just wasn't done. So when she found out that she was pregnant, she was horrified. You know, what will people think? At that time, when she spoke about being pregnant, here's what she would do. She would put her hand, you know, her hands over her face and go, you know, she's PG. You know, you couldn't even say pregnant. She was, but she had 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 three boys, and she had always wanted a little girl. And uh, so I guess it was destiny, and we made some kind of agreement that we would, I would give her that gift, that special gift, on her 42nd birthday. So that's what we did.
0: So what do you mean, agreement?
1: Some kind of agreement that we made, like, karmically in the sky before I got here. I mean, it was just too profound the way that it happened, you know, that 25 years, she had tried three times, and she all she'd ever dreamed about was a little baby girl that she could dress up and put little curls in her hair and you know that little southern doll thing and and i just felt like oh my god i i knew cuz her favorite story when she found out she was pregnant the doctor told her and she went i am not and she stormed out of the office the doctor's office cuz she was so horrified but You know, nine months later, I came, and (laughs) I feel like during that gestation period, I knew that she didn't want me. But then when I got here, she was like, oh, my God, you're so precious. You know, and you're everything I dreamed of, rosy cheeks, and I had no hair. Even on my first birthday, she, uh, you know, scotch-taped, a bow on the top of my head so I could be that little girl. But she did dress me up like a doll, you know, and um, little dresses and she made the ringlets on her fingers. We didn't have all the hair blowers and stuff then. She'd just uh, wet dry, you know, wash my hair, roll it on her finger, you know, like wrap it around and then it would just come down in these beautiful little curls.
0: You have pictures of yourself? I do. Wow.
1: I have one that says it all, where it's like, "Get me the hell out of this dress." <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of how I felt. But she I I was never what she wanted.
0: So you That's have funny. to meet like all that all that hope is poured into this one single child.
1: That's exact oh very well said that's exactly it
0: it's an impossible standard
1: it was for both of us you know that sort of began our conflict began in the womb you know and then when we when i came out i just wasn't what she had expected Even though I looked like that with the little curls and she dressed me that way, but that was not my spirit. You know, my spirit was very different.
0: So what happened when you became a teenager?
1: All hell broke loose. Oh dear Lord, yeah.
0: And what did that look like?
1: Well, you know, I I was a typical teenager. I wanted to try everything and I did. I started drinking, of course. I was in, uh, actually in New Jersey when I had my first drink, and my brother, the one who lives in Albany, was older than me, and he, he was trying some vodka. So he, he said, here, you just try a little bit of this. And so I, I tried it. It was in orange juice, vodka and orange juice. And we were sitting in this convertible on the beach, and I remember like trying to, I had my legs crossed and I tried to put my elbow on my knee and I was falling <laughs> down. I was like, oh, this is really nice. <laughs> and that that moment was the beginning of my journey with alcohol. That did not turn out well, but has now. But that was sort of the... Um, you know, she still wanted me to be all those things, and she was just horrified that I wanted to dance. At that time, you did not dance. You know, we were very Southern Baptist. And so.
0: So we're talking basically the end of the 50s, right? End of the, end
1: of the 50s and early 60s. I graduated high school in 62.
0: So when you say dance, live band or records or what?
1: Any of it. You did not, you just didn't dance.
0: And what kind of music would you listen to what did you dance to? I
1: listened to Bo Diddley, was one of my favorites. Ray Charles was always my go-to guy. From... Spent, from Leesburg.
0: Spent some time near Albany, Georgia. Yeah,
1: he was born in Leesburg.
0: And Albany claims him, and that's very funny because I don't think he claimed Albany. N- Never. No. He did
1: not. No. no.
0: And they, they've, they, they're they 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 the ones who've done that.
1: That's right. And there's a monument to him.
0: Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Big sculpture sitting yes, at the piano. at the piano. And they play his music. That's
1: there right. There
0: can be nobody sitting there in that riverfront park, and they'll still, like, Pipe his music.
1: Right. I haven't <laughs> done that yet.
0: It's actually kind of funny.
1: <laughs> but I mean, you know, think about this, that I, at, you know, because back then uh, the, there were two schools. One was the white school, one with high schools, I mean, and one was the black school. Right. And um, you did, we, our paths did not cross. And at that time in, you know, like in our church. Um,
0: Where'd you go to church?
1: First Baptist, the church.
0: No, no dancing there.
1: No dancing there. <laughs> no,
0: no sock hops. Down no the, sock the, the hops. The Baptist. Church. None
1: of that. No, no, no. Uh, but I loved to dance, and I loved black music. It was just in. It was just something that I resonated with, rather than. Bubblegum stuff. I just never liked that, but that was like in my soul somehow.
0: What were your encounters with black people? Like, what is your idea of black people in? Because Albany, Georgia was in the so called black belt. W.E.B. Right. Du Bois wrote about black, about right. the, the descendants of slaves, about how they arrived, when they arrived. You know, and 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 then yeah. the the entire history. So, what was your personal relationship?
1: Well, I had a very interesting one, thanks to my father, who was um, a wonderful man, who was an insurance salesman, and not a very good one. Um, he he had no business sense. He had such a big heart that. Um, he 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 had a lot of clients in the black community. And I don't have to tell you, it was not called the black community then, um, but he had a, a lot of his clients were in that community. And sometimes he would take me with him on his rounds because he, he went around and collected the money then. They're, they didn't have uh, ATMs and, you know, big... Uh, things we have, PayPal. No checks either. No checks, none of that.
0: This was an envelope.
1: It was an envelope, exactly. So he would take me out with him, and then when he went in to be with the client, I would play with their kids in the yard. You know, so, I mean, we just had a wonderful time. And as you know, children don't see all that We put on it, you know. Kids, just uh, let's play. So we played and ran around, and I, I I feel like my father, my father showed me that color is something that we there's it's a this is a human being, you know, and let's play, let's enjoy, and. Oftentimes, I remember the. Uh, it was often a woman who was there, uh, didn't have the money, and and she would, she would say to my dad, "Mr. Hall, I I just don't have it this month," and and he'd say, "That's okay," and he'd take he'd take that money out of his own pocket, and he'd put it in that envelope. So, I mean, all those things are very vivid in my brain of how to, how to behave towards people, you know. that Those little events at those little houses there have carried me through my whole life. Just those simple little things, but they were the basis and the foundation for, for how I've lived my whole life. And he never spoke a word about it.
0: And what did your mother and father, uh, your mother in particular, think of your kind of record collection, uh, of your, you know, liking the dance, liking that music, that kind of thing?
1: I'm going straight to hell. (laughs) Did she tell you that? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It, it, it's, you'd it,
0: been listening to Pat Boone. Do you think you would have gotten that message? Or?
1: <laughs> no. Pat. Pat was okay. <laughs> And my mother's favorite person was Liberace. Let's think about that.
0: (laughs) It was acceptable.
1: He was very acceptable. And he was
0: not going to (laughs) hell.
1: No, and she was very much in love with him in a bizarre kind of way. And we know how that all turned out. But (laughs) Yeah, and I remember, too, you, you will, you know, the downtown area was where they had the, we didn't have malls then, and the downtown area was where the you know the stores were where you shop for things. And I remember the one on the corner, and we always shop there and and they had water fountains. and they had the whites only sign and And I remember thinking, well, what's the difference in this water? you know that this is for white people and that one over there is for the black people. What's the difference in the water? And it it just, none of it made any sense to me. So I remember taking the sign down and I, I put it in my pants and I took it out of the store and I threw it away. And then, of course, the next time I went there, there was another sign that said whites only
0: how old were you?
1: I was a teenager then,
0: and that wasn't. It was kind of a protest, or uh?
1: it was like this. This doesn't make any sense. What? What? Are, why can't they drink where I drink? It just didn't make sense. But it wasn't talked about, you know. I mean, it was very serious back then, and Martin Luther King was. Um, he was protesting in Albany, and he often preached down on, I think it was Whitney Street. There was a black church down there. And he he often came there and spoke.
0: Did you ever see him with your own eyes?
1: I have a very interesting story about that. I want to if hear it. Okay. This was after I was... Um, well, you know, he, he protested and it was a horror to a lot of people that he would be there and blah, blah, blah.
0: Well, the spring and summer of 1962, which would have been 60 years ago now, he was in Albany and there was the, what they call the Albany Movement. I'm
1: sorry. That's exactly correct. Go on. Yeah, with Lewis. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that was very, and we were very much in the national news, which horrified some people that... Our lovely little town was on the national news for such a horrid, you know, outsiders, the, outside God. agitators. Oh, yeah, them agitators. Um, but um, anyway, so he was very much a part of, uh, you know, our and experience.
0: I interrupted your story. You were yes. Saying. Now
1: I'm going back to that. Okay, help me stay on track. I was older. I think I'm not sure if I had. I was a teenager.
0: About 18.
1: Yeah, something like that. And I was going to visit my sister in Philadelphia. And so I went to the airport, getting ready to board, and all of a sudden, all these cars come screeching and stopping and the sirens are going and people get out of their cars and start running all over the airport. They go to the plane, Uh, you know, this was a small airport and you walk, you know, you don't go through what you go through now. So they were all over the plane and, and, and I go, what's going on, what's going on? And they say, there's a bomb on the plane, it's the FBI. And we find out shortly that on the plane with me will be Dr. Martin Luther King and his wife Choretichine, and that's why there was a bomb on the plane. So... Not a real bomb. Well, they thought it was a bomb, Mm. and that's why they were there. And, you know, we wait for hours, and they search the plane, and then they're convinced that there isn't a plane, and we're able to fly. So I get on the plane, it's a little chopper, going from Albany to Atlanta. I get on the plane. A little crop plane. There's a little crop plane, yeah. I'm sitting on an aisle seat here, and diagonally from me, because we're the only people on this plane, and there's Dr. King and his wife. Coretta, And I'm, I'm sitting on the plane, and I'm going, oh, my God. They thought there was a plane, a, a bomb. They didn't find it. Any moment i'm going to blow up, and I'll always be known as the girl that was on the plane <laughs> with Dr. King and his wife up.
0: <laughs> little white girl little also white killed girl,
1: also <laughs> killed yes, but you know, and i I have very few regrets about my life, but that is one that I didn't get myself out of my seat and go over there and go talk to me, you know, tell me anything. But I was I was so scared, I just, I watched them, but we safely made it uh, to Atlanta.
0: What I try to tell people is, you know, there's this notion that if you were white and you were in Albany, Georgia, then basically you were with the Klan, you know? Yeah. I, and it's, I'm like, you, what you don't understand is the, I call it genteel racism. Yeah. Ultimately, Dr. King was able to effect massive change. Yeah. But he didn't do it in Albany. Yeah. And that was because the racists were not with the attack dogs. They were, you know, they wore suits and ties and they, as they say, they yeah. operated fountain pens. They didn't yeah. operate you know, fire hoses and attack dogs, they operated fountain pens.
1: Yeah, they were the sheriffs.
0: And- they were the sheriff, they were the mayor. Yep. Were, it, was, it was my father's best friends were who ran Albany, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow. You know, talk about being on the wrong side of history.
1: Yeah. But, I, I you know, thinking about that genteel racism, I mean, I, I do remember, uh, I mean, we were not, uh, my father died when I was seven, and that left my mother with two small children, you know, not a, a lot of skills, she'd been a housewife. And and so she, she did what she knew how to do, she was smart in that way, she knew how to cook, so she got a job. Um, in the school system, you know, as uh, in the kitchen making lunches for kids. And she also did it at the First Baptist Church, because on Wednesday nights you had Wednesday night suppers. And so she that was her job. And um, one of the women that worked there, her name was Mary, and of course she was black. We didn't have any money, but somehow Mary got to come to our house once in a while to help my mother keep the house clean because we didn't, you know, she was a working mother. And I remember being, I think I was like 16, and I was newly driving. And so a mother let me take Mary home. Um, and she lived over on the other side of town. And um, so we, we get in, the we start to get in the car and she, just naturally gets in the back. And I said, no, no, just sit here. And- Sit up front. Yes, sit sit beside me. And so I could see her reluctance, but she did it. And then I thought, you know, later, many years later, how terrifying that was for her at that time. You know, we're driving through the heart of downtown Albany. I'm a little white girl. I got this black woman sitting in the front seat like we belong. And how how uncomfortable that had made her that I mean she was the one I was not nothing was going to happen to me, but something could have happened to her. That how dare you sit in the front seat, you know? And I've thought about that so many times. Of like, she was a a part of our family in a sense, and that's how we viewed the help. Um, but that was put her in a, a very difficult situation for her. Um,
0: And you, like, see all this in retrospect. As a child, you think you're being kind. But in fact, what it does is, like, force the issue out. Like, for her, it just makes her uncomfortable.
1: Right. And I, you know, I was, I was mirroring the behavior of my father. He didn't make those distinctions, you know. He just, how y'all doing? Sit down, talk, have a great time. Oh, you don't have the money? Okay. He, I was, I was repeating what I saw done. And so I think that that's okay too, you know, because I think that that has served me well. But I'm just thinking about that day, how that was difficult. And I could see something on her face, but I didn't make all that connection. You know, I was 16. I didn't make the connection of, oh, this is 1960 in the Deep South. You know, I didn't make all those connections at that time.
0: Where did you get some distance in time and space from Albany, Georgia? to be able to look back on these kinds of stories and process them and filter them and gain some understanding of what went on, make some sense of it.
1: I had a dream. uh, My own personal dream. Not Dr. King's, but I had a dream, and that was to get the hell out of there. <laughs> and uh, You're not the only one. <laughs> yeah, no, it was like, oh, my God, just get me out of high school. And Anyway, I, <clears throat> I went to college, and then I, I graduated, and I lived in Atlanta, trying to sort of find my way. Where did you go to college? M- Mercer University. I yeah. went to Shorter College first in Rome, Georgia, yeah. and they kicked me out for um, drinking and staying really? out late. Yeah.
0: Really? Party animal.
1: Oh, yeah, they trapped us. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> that's a whole other story. But so I went to New uh, to Atlanta to, like, okay, what am I going to do? And I did all these odd jobs. and And one Saturday morning, I was lying in bed and i went you know what get up get out of here and do what you want to do so i packed everything up that day i drove home to albany i walked in and i said mother i'm moving to new york city and she just about had a heart attack (laughs) But I did it I wanted to be an actor so um, I I, uh, I moved to New York and I knew I knew one person there and I stayed with her until I got my own place and um, you did know you I, act I did and I got lots of those uh, you know I was a server in uh, lots of little restaurants and um,
0: what kind of acting? Stage?
1: Or? A stage. Yeah, I studied with uh, Stella Adler. Wow. Know, yeah. How'd you get in there? Just I, I had to, <laughs> you, you know. Just kept just showing sheer, up. Just sheer guts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had a lot of drive, and I wanted it so badly, and um, and so you know, I did the interview, and I got in into the school, and I had no money. I worked as a, a, a at the concession stand at the Cinerama Cinerama Theater on uh, Broadway, and uh, that, and oftentimes that was my dinner was the popcorn because I had no money and every penny I got went to Stella, you know, so I could do that, and um, but I. Uh, I remember the first day I saw her. You don't get to meet the queen, you know, right away. But the first day of class, we're sitting there and everybody is so nervous, because they're all like me. They've never met the woman before. And then we're waiting, waiting, and finally, it's like those old films of Loretta Young swinging through. <laughs> the, the door opens. And she's like 6'6", six, six. <laughs> she's <laughs> gigantically tall and stunningly beautiful. I had never seen anybody this beautiful. And she swings open the door and she looks at all of us little peons sitting in the theater and she goes, welcome to the theater. Oh my God, we all fainted. She was just, oh, amazing.
0: Talk about an entrance.
1: Oh, my God, yeah. But she, she was like a key figure in, in my life for quite a while. And uh, she took us, and she'd never done this before, but she formed a repertory company with some of us from those classes. And we toured all over New England and upstate New York.
0: What kind of shows did you do?
1: Oh, we did, you know, she was very classic, classic theater. She loved Tennessee Williams, you know, o- uh, 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 Eugene O'Neill, you know, all those beautiful old old plays. And we did some musicals as well. But anyway, she was a very strong influence in my life for a long time.
0: So, were you a professional? Did you support yourself?
1: For a while, I did. Yeah. Wow! And
0: that is no small thing.
1: It was not small, and you know. But it, that, it, but it's hard to get a job in the theater. I mean, I did a lot of summer theater. I did a lot of uh, uh, off Broadway, and then you've got to feed yourself, you know. And I got sort of got to the place where, and I, um, I was doing a lot of auditions for commercials. And and I just was like, Oh my God, you want me to sell this little box of soap and I know how to play Medea? You know. <laughs> it's like, no, this is making no sense. Oh gosh, I was trying to tell you about you know, if you as a small town girl going straight into Manhattan, you know, I saw every color, I heard every language, you know, all these things that I had never experienced in my life. You know, I only heard English, and you go there, and there's people on the subway are speaking their languages, and they're all different colors of people, and oh my gosh, it was like, oh my God, look at the world. It's amazing! And I, I never saw any of that growing up. So it was like I, I was completely a sponge to everything around me. And everywhere I went, there was a different style and a different, and um, it was, it it, it it was like I was, I really was a sponge, just fill me up, let me see more, let me, let me hear more. And that's, you know, all that stuff that my father taught me just, I got plopped right in the biggest city in the country, you know, and it, it just fed my soul, being there. And, uh, but then one day I went, you know, I really gotta eat I really do have to eat Uh, and uh, that's when somebody said you know uh I think you might be good for this job at billboard and I had no experience in this but I went there and I I, they had an opening in the radio um, airline division and uh, I don't know somehow I got the job and then I was a producer of uh, radio shows and um, airline shows. And that,
0: there, that would be on the planes. On that the would planes, be, you, uh-huh. you could listen to it through your
1: headsets right. on the plane. Uh huh. Yeah. And at that time, that was a big deal. Though, mm-hmm. To get uh, all artists wanted to be on. And we had
0: you didn't like DJ, but you were you um, you would produce it. Were you the anchor? Were you the voiceover? Uh huh. Yeah. You did. Yeah. uh You got great pipes. You got a good. You've got a good (laughs) strong voice. That acting (laughs) paid off.
1: It did. (laughs) Did Uh, you lose
0: the southern accent?
1: Well, this is another story. I, you know, everywhere I went when I first moved to New York, they were like. (laughs) (laughs) listen to you and i go okay this and of course you can't be an actor and have a southern accent you know so i i got a job as a page at um nbc studios in rockefeller center Mm -hmm. and part of your duties when you weren't giving a tour you um sat in the booth in the lobby and you sold the tickets to the tours. And so sometimes I'd just be there for a while without anybody coming to me. So I had my little, uh, all my pages for how to say an A and what words are, you know, have an A in it that sound like this or in uh, all the vowels and then how to do your T's and how to do your P's. and, And I'd just sit there and go, you know owl not all like i learned you know oil uh you know all i just practice 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 and um that's how i uh got past that but an interesting story now that we're on this is we also um were in charge. Uh, Johnny Carson was, uh, you know, that's where his studio was then. We were in charge of getting the audience in, filling the studio before he, you know, the show started. So um, <clears throat> we did that. And one day I was supposed to be up on the uh, Studio 8H where he was. And I go, I, I go up. I'm on the floor, and um, we're to greet the, you know, the stars that are coming on to be on the show. So the elevator door opens, and there is Miss Judy Garland. Oh, my God. So she's standing there, and she is drunk as a skunk. And she's got these two beautiful young men on each side. So they take her
0: holding her up
1: holding her up and they she gets out of the elevator and i'm like oh my god there's judy garland and she's drunk (laughs) anyway they get her into makeup and she's just like i mean she's just really all over the place and then it's time for the show and she can't walk so she can't You know, Johnny can't be at his desk and go, Judy, come on out, and they walk out. They had to take Judy, like, and Johnny's here at his little desk, and here's Judy over here, and they they put Judy in her chair, and they sit her down. The lights are down, and then when they come back from commercial, She's magically sitting there, but she is drunk, and he's furious, like, you know, don't come on my show like this. But anyway. How did
0: he handle it? Could you tell how angry he was? Yes. You probably can. He
1: made it, yeah. But the lights are down. He's like.
0: No, but once the lights came up and you're on.
1: Well, what happened is, Miss Judy, when the lights come up, she's like this, the lights come up
0: she rises to the occasion
1: i'm judy Garland. yes unbelievable and she couldn't walk to go sing so he hands her a mic she sang from her seat so nobody out there knew and then when the light when she was done with her thing her segment them pretty little boys came and got her. And
0: and, they, her. and the lights went back down?
1: The lights went down. They go, you know, it's commercial. They take her off. Wow. Isn't that something?
0: That is. That's quite the story. <laughs> you see, and then later on, when you see the biopics and everything, you see how, you know, really damaged she was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: But what a, what a talent she was, too.
0: Um you wrote a book, right? I did. And you wrote about damage. Yes. This this is your book?
1: This is my book.
0: A legacy of lies.
1: A legacy of lies. And it's a woman's journey to the truth.
0: And you were probably a good bit older when you wrote that. Yes. What what prompted you to write it?
1: actually it it was my brother that prompted me because you know in when I, when when I was growing up in Albany it you know it was a tranquil little town and the outside looked lovely and people had their little homes and you know, all this stuff was bubbling under it, but it wasn't talked about. And it was a genteel life, and everybody's got secrets. And there were, there was a secret that I had that um, I had never. I had told one person, actually, when I was 28 years old, I told one person about some abuse that happened. And um, I told my brother about it, and then years later, we were sitting in that same Albany airport, and kind of out of the blue, my brother said, you know, I didn't see anything happened in in our home. Um, So I need need some evidence that this stuff that you're saying happened, happened. And um, I said, I'm the evidence. And uh, he said, that's not enough. I need more. So, I, I lived in Nashville at the time and I came back and I said, you know what, I got to do this. So, I made a list of all my aunts and all of their children. I got their telephone numbers and um, I called the first aunt that I called was my Aunt Dottie and I I called her and I said you know I I need to talk to you about your father and this may be difficult if you don't want me to continue I won't and she said no no that's okay go ahead and I said your father my grandfather started abusing me when i was five years old and my brother wants some evidence and i there was silence and then i heard her crying And then she said, tell your brother I'm the evidence. And from there, I went on my journey, calling every female in my family. And finding out what happened, if anybody knew anything. So, my book is really about all of that, but it's about relationships and it's about secrets and how to. how to have these difficult experiences and how to triumph from them and not have them be the order of your life or the the thing that motivates your life or that damages your life but it's the thing that motivates your life in a way that that you're triumphant and that you thrive and that you have passion for um, the joys of life rather than having these experiences be the things that um, alter your life.
0: After you wrote that and you showed it to your brother, did he believe you then?
1: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, After I spoke with my aunt Dottie, I called my brother. And, uh, and I told him what happened. And his words were, okay, how can I help? He got it then. So he helped me get more numbers. He helped me track down things. And he became a total, total supporter of the journey and has been there ever since.
0: And um, your healing, uh, did it come, uh, Through, like, therapy, through spiritual development, through this writing, how were you able to... Because to me, that's the most fascinating thing, is how were you able, what process did you use to heal?
1: I've always been on a spiritual journey because a lot of things didn't make sense, and I wanted to... I knew that there's there's something big, you know, and I felt like that big was in me too, but how to connect all that. So I've always been seeking, seeking, seeking to know. Um, and um, I became a Buddhist when I lived in New York, and I chanted, and that really helped me a lot. It c- kept me from committing suicide. Um, and uh, I continued on that journey, and then uh, the next major thing was um, was getting sober, um, and that was about twenty seven years ago.
0: What pathway did you use to get sober?
1: I I uh, I went. Uh, uh, may i tell just a little oh please the, this little story about getting sober um I, I you know it was my drinking was really getting out of control though i was functioning um but it was cinco de mayo in los angeles and you know
2: it, big party
1: it, yeah it's big party day and um Anyway, I woke up and I started drinking about 7 o'clock in the morning, and, um, and you know, I was at home alone, and um, anyway, I, 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 I drank, I, I think I drank some beer, and then I drank some brandy, and, um, I don't know, maybe like about 10.30 or 11 o'clock, I mean, I was just completely out of it. And um, I, my phone rang, and at that time we had those uh, phone machines, and you could hear who was calling. And the phone rang, and it was a dear friend, and she said, I haven't, I haven't uh, heard from you in a couple of days. Are you okay? And uh, I, I picked up the phone, and I said, I'm not. And um, anyway, to make a long story short, she helped me get to, um, to the hospital, and um, they uh, sent me straight to um, Carson, where they have a rehab center, uh, a detox center. And um, I, I went there, and um, then um, after I did that program, they felt I wasn't able to take, you know, to be, I I was a danger to myself, and so they put me in the mental hospital, and I stayed there for a month. And um, then that was sort of the, then that's how I got connected to AA. In detox, they make you go. You crawl, you vomit on the way, but they make you go. I mean, they bring the AA meeting to you, And that's how I got connected with AA and then uh, that began my uh, sobriety program.
0: To what extent do you think that um, your drinking was a direct result of the abuse, uh, a way of staying alive, um, a way of processing the abuse?
1: After one drink, I didn't want to kill myself. It would just, it was like uh, I was telling you about that first time I tasted the vodka and the orange juice. That was like, oh my God, I feel good. Because I walked around with shame all the time, because I had this big secret that nobody knew about. And I'm, I'm having sex with my grandfather, and nobody knows it but me. So uh, um, it, alcohol just became, oh, and then I could, you know, it made me feel alive at a party. And, you know, I just, oh, my God, it was euphoric. Um, a release. It was a release until, you know. It wasn't anymore. And then, of course, cocaine came in when I moved to L.A. and, you know, all that. It got really dark and heavy fast. Um, But it, it, it made all that go away in the moment. And then when you wake up, it became increasingly more difficult when I woke up to go, oh, it's all still here. So then I'd have to drink again or do another line of Coke. um, So it, it masked everything and made life tolerable, and it did keep me from killing myself. Until that last day when I got sober and before my friend called. I had that bottle of brandy, and I was just... I took the bottle of brandy, and I just put it up in the you know, just poured it down on my face and my hair. And I was like, go ahead, you mother. Kill me. I just want it out. And another, that magical phone call at that moment, the synchronicity of her calling, just and that her voice, which was a loving voice, she was the one that helped me. So then, you know, through, the, through all of that, then I was able to really get some serious deep therapy and... Um, you know, to go, go down that path and lots of um, intense weekends and those events that you do to…
0: Do you think your grandfather was an evil man? Do you think he was a very, very sick man? Do you think he was a broken man? Uh, how do you regard him now?
1: Boy, it it's evolved, yeah. Because in the beginning, when I became aware of everything, I hated him. I mean, I I believe if I'd been in a room with him, I might have killed him. Um, there there was just so much anger of like how how that how could you do this? Um, but over the course of my spiritual Evolvement, and um, I came to see that um, he, whatever his wounds were, he wasn't able to. His demon was sexually driven, and um, and he he had no control over that, seemingly. Because it was stronger than he was, so I've come to see him now as um, I have. To, I have really forgiven him, and I I understand that his wounds were more powerful than his. Higher self, at that time, and um, it, it. I have compassion for him because anybody that could do that to so many innocent people. Um, he needs. Uh, he needs my forgiveness, and I'm. I'm stronger than he is, and I'm more powerful than he is.
0: Did- um anyone ever confront him? No. Um when when he died um was he ever able t- do you think to get peace for himself? No. So he died at age
1: I think he was must have been in his 80s. Um and he died of stomach cancer. And he died, actually, right before I left to go to, um, go to New York.
0: Did you go to the funeral?
1: No. Because I, when, when he, right before I, I left to go to New York, my mother said, your granddaddy's in the hospital, you need to go see him and say goodbye to him. So, though she knew none of this, but I went... And I re- remember standing over his bed, and he, he did like this, like, come here.
0: He motioned you over. Yeah,
1: like c- with his finger, come here. Like, like he had done so many times before. But I knew I was safe because I was in the room and everybody was there. So I went over to his bed. And he motioned me to lean down so he could say something to me. So I leaned over and he said, don't go to New York. There are bad people there. So I just looked at him and I stepped away and I walked out of the room and I never saw him again. And he died shortly after that, but I was in New York. So I I never saw him again what were you thinking? <laughs> I mean I mean, that was even there's no words to describe what that was. What do you think bad people are, my friend? <laughs> so he died shortly after that, so he had no he he never had any remorse and um. And he never was confronted by anybody and uh, the only confrontations happened was when I started making those phone calls.
0: Have they been able to get help?
1: Uh, Most have not. I was the lucky one that I got out. I got out, I got in a big place with different mindsets and I was able to get help you know a lot uh, of many have stayed in you know the uh where they grew up and
0: behind you on the wall I I see this master of arts in spiritual psychology um I take from that and from all the buddhist flags (laughs) and the Sculptures and everything here in your lovely home that um, you've been able to turn around and reach back. There's the story of the Bodhisattva, and the Bodhisattva is the one who makes Alex, right. rather right. than to go on and be separate, Alex to become the teacher and the helper and yes. to lift others up. Yes. Um, how is it that you do that? How does that look in your life? How have you been able to? turn around and help others.
1: Well, you know, I think that if i if if my brother and i had not gone on this journey together to discover this, it would still be lying dormant in our family. And that was not acceptable. That is dark, heavy, karmic lifetime crap that strangled the women in my family. And if I look back, I can see the effects that it had on them. Some of them said, please don't tell my husband. I've never told him. How do you think it's affecting your family? You know, one saying, oh my God, I I was never able to share with my husband and I see how this affected the way I was unable to really fully love my children and that's deep stuff that would never have been uncovered and it 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 was haunting my family and haunting haunting the entire family. And I feel like that was my that was my journey to do that. That was my mission to do it. Hate me if you will, I've shed light on this. And if you don't shed light on the dark, it will eat you alive. And um, so I feel like that was, was my mission. And interestingly enough, two of the people that originally hung up on me, have called me since and said, you know, I finally read your book and I'm really sorry. And then we're able to share.
0: This so, man abused multiple generations, three. three generations. There is the concept that when we heal, we heal multiple generations that's
1: exactly going
0: before and after
1: that is the buddhist principle
0: and so you were able to heal generations before you because of the book and because of shedding the light and give power to generations reach back as the bodhisattva does and pull future generations forward to say absolutely it is absolutely essential your life depends upon you getting this shame and the secret out
1: yes Uh, that was that was my total thought i'm reaching back and i'm reaching forward and you can come with me or not but this is where i'm going and i you have to heal this stuff You know, because I don't want some little girl in my family now to to care, because it will be carried. He's not here. But that darkness will be carried. And somebody's got to shed the light on it so that the young women now can go, No. I didn't know how to say no, because when I grew up, you do what your adults tell you shut up, listen. And that's exactly what I did. And that's how I wound up in the barn. You know, I've just always been a champion for women and women standing up for who they are. And without anger, but just...
0: You never had uh, children yourself. Was that an intentional kind of a thing? Yeah. Because...
1: When I was... um, you know, in my 20s, uh, I was not sober yet, and I was still, you know, in the throes of all that. I, I didn't, um, I f- life was too difficult, and I said I, I could not bring a child into this, because I thought all of life was like that. You know, I didn't know yet about all this other beauty that life held so I just said I can't I couldn't do that to another human being so I elected not to um, and that that has been a good choice uh, I'd be a great uh, I'd be a great grandma now and I'm a good aunt now but um, th- just the last thing I want to say about this because I I, I I think if we don't... There's, there's so much beauty in this world. And, and so much joy. And there's so much to be shared between people that is safe and good and honest and compassionate and loving. And that's what really life is. And if, if you have these kind of dark things in your life, be brave and let's heal them, and then let's experience the real joy of life, which is the human connection and the compassion that we feel for each other.
0: It's important that we hear that when we become so consumed to think that peace is what everything is about. Yes. We lost Tik Khan this yeah. this year. Yes. But that's certainly what he was about. Yeah. And uh, there's a very, very powerful teaching. Um, you know uh, Muslims refer to peace is at the core of their faith. Christians refer to Jesus as the Prince of Peace, and then here are Buddhists, who are not an Abrahamic faith, who are from the opposite side of the planet, who refer to this very human principle of peace as the the default setting. And peace could not occur in our hometown of Albany, Georgia, without outing all the the violence of genteel racism, the everyday violence of it and the violence of this kind of um, toxic masculine sexual abuse
1: um,
0: without coming to terms with that. and As a man not being in any way defensive or in any way diminishing the horrific damage Mm -hmm. The life and death damage it, it causes. So, um, uh, I so you know love and admire you and your and your your story. Uh-huh. I I just feel so privileged when I uh-huh. when I hear your story. You know, to t- to bear witness. I mean it helps. You know it helps so many generations.
1: Yeah, and the the good part, as you say, is, you know, everybody's got a story, but everybody can get out. Everybody can find their strength and find their courage and step into who they're really supposed to be and who they really are. And at the core of that is peace, and joy, and joy is is available to all of us. Thank you so much for this.
0: Jean is just a peaceful, calm person. She is a person who has made peace, and I'm a better person for having met her. Thank you, Jean.
2: In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Alison and Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp-Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins & Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. And take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women.
0: A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported manlistening.com. My venture in this, which is now we're in our fifth year. Also, voicelocket.com, a for-profit business. Check it out, voicelocket.com.
2: Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.